0: normally have a main idea and we have that today it's just a little bit different so let me spend a couple seconds here can we put that up Ashley so comfort god's people um, there should be a parenthetical note beside that that's okay it's that should i want you to think in three in three numbers or three dates think 700 600 500 all right so easy enough to remember 700 600 500 those are the years i want you to think through as we're in isaiah so 2,700, actually almost, well, uh, more than that. 2,700 and something years ago is when Isaiah writes this. And he writes to a people in real time. He is speaking to people. And it's important when we see the passage today to remember that it's speaking to people that were alive then. Can you do me a favor, Ashley? Can you start that timer so I don't get lost, please? Then 600 years ago, sorry, 2,600 years ago. So 600 B.C., is the kind of the passage that we heard where Assyria is coming in. I'm sorry, that would be rough, 700. So they're coming in, and they've attacked Israel and sacked Israel. They've conquered almost all of Judah, and they stop. If you remember two weeks ago, they stop before Jerusalem, and they speak to the people in Jerusalem. And the the people in Jerusalem make a stand with King Hezekiah. They make a stand believing in God, that God is going to save Jerusalem from being overrun. And God does that. And Isaiah, that passage in Isaiah, and then the next passage, Pastor Vinny did last week, they actually happen like this. They're not consecutive. They happen simultaneously. What we get is the view from the outside of Jerusalem as the Assyrians and the Rabshakeh, the, the royal messenger of Assyria is speaking to the people. Then they send and they give word to the king and the king goes in and he prays. If you remember, and he lays that letter out from that messenger about how they're going to destroy them and how their God is not powerful. And he lays that out in the temple. We get a snapshot right there of Hezekiah's prayers, but what we also get, and this was last week's message happening at the same time, is struggling with his health, Hezekiah's dying, and Hezekiah cries out to God. God gives him 15 more years, and really, he gets caught up in this life more than he does in what God has done for him, or more than he does in God's kingdom, he gets caught up in his kingdom. That's something we can all relate to, Right? And we get caught up in our little kingdoms that we try and build for ourselves and we miss the big picture, the capital K kingdom, right? And so in that, God tells Hezekiah, hey, listen, because of your failure, though I saved you from Assyria, Babylon's gonna come in and wipe you out. So 700, 600, they are completely destroyed and taken into Babylonian captivity. And in the 500s, God begins to use others and release them back into Jerusalem. And really, the story of Isaiah ends roughly in the 500s. If you guys are familiar with with Nehemiah, that story of Nehemiah happens as they're returning from Babylon. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel, that takes place while they're in Babylon. So to give you some biblical context, all this is taking place. I say all of that... Because we're going to read a verse today and we often tie it to something that happens much later. We'll talk about that. We hear these passages that talk about Jesus. And we put them in their context about Jesus. And we miss that they were said in real time to real people. Are you with me? So this is a message to people 2,600 years ago, roughly. I'm giving you round numbers. That are taken into Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has come in and, and conquered them and taken them into captivity, and now God is speaking. And this is important because we're still reading from Isaiah, but this book spans roughly 200 years. So we'll talk about that. How can the same person speak for that long? Simple answer. We'll get there. So verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry. So that, back to that main idea. So Isaiah speaks to a sinful... No, back one, please. Isaiah 40 takes us 200 years forward to a time at the end of the Babylonian captivity. God offers comfort to a new generation who is willing to be obedient. Will we be an obedient generation or not? There you go. Thank you for adding those dates. Imagine a book taking place over 200 years, and it begins by Isaiah calling out to a disobedient people of faith and telling them, listen, here's what's coming if you remain disobedient. And they, for the most part, don't listen. And so God does that time after time after time. He tells them. And they get worse, not better. So God ends up destroying most of Judah and all of Israel. And before Jerusalem falls, they have a leader who leads them back to God. And God spares Jerusalem. Remember his promises from early in Isaiah. I will leave a seed that will continue my people. So God is fulfilling his promises in real time as this takes place. Verse 1, Isaiah 40. Excuse me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So here's kind of what we've covered, but I want to to drive this point in. So Isaiah 1 through 39, that's the next slide. Isaiah speaks to a sinful nation on behalf of a loving God, resulting in God saving Jerusalem after Judah and Israel destroyed by Assyria. However, the people of God fall back in old habits, and it sends them into captivity, warning all of us to guard our hearts, right? When God does something for us, and I use a couple examples, sometimes people come here and they're unemployed and they're just struggling, and they're like, I need a job, I need a job, and they, they really press into God while they're in need, and then God provides a job. And then the next thing you know, they're, you know, because when they didn't have a job, they're, they're coming on Sunday mornings, they're coming on Sunday nights, they're going to community group, they're volunteering somewhere, they're doing all of this. And then God provides for them a job. And then they end up working and because they were off for so long, you know, they're in debt or they have need or whatever. And so they end up working and working and working. And the next thing you know, man, community group slips off and Sunday night slips off and serving slips off. And, and then they're working overtime to catch up and Sunday morning seems to slip away. And then their heart kind of slips away. And we see that the very person who pressed into God and God answered their prayers has then fallen away. We do the same thing, people of all ages. But, you know, a lot of times people come in single, really struggling with their singleness. God, I, I want a, a spouse or I want a this or a that. Or I want children or want this or whatever. And God provides in that. And then that very thing that is a blessing from God ends up being a distraction from the things that kept them near to God. We all struggle here, right? Fill in anything, whatever it is, and it draws us away, or it has the potential to. So we have to be a people that learn from our past and the past that our hearts are easily drawn off track. And that's where they go. God delivers them, rescues them, saves them from the demise of all their brothers and sisters and cousins and people around them. And then they forget. Hezekiah, the godly king who leads them back to God, forgets. Gets caught up in his kingdom, not God's kingdom. And so God, again, calling out to them, just lifts his hand. And says, okay, now it's Babylon. And they will conquer Jerusalem. That takes place. So they've now been in captivity. And they're crying and they're, and they're saying, God, rescue us again. And again, so Isaiah 39, just last week. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, remember that how he was showing off to the Babylonians all his wealth, all his gold, all his stuff, all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And the in the, per, in the preservation of Jerusalem, the armies that had been sacking nations on their way in would carry that carry the gold and the treasure and the things that they had taken with them. So they're standing outside of Jerusalem, ready to sack Jerusalem, ready to take Jerusalem and level it with all the stuff that they've been taking from everybody else. And so when God preserves Jerusalem, they get all their stuff and they come up, right? So they become a wealthy city nation kind of place, right? Jerusalem is to Judah like Washington, D.C. is to us without all the negative connotations, right? or Sacramento, I know Southern Californians, we don't really, I get it, a capital to a nation, you with me? And Jerusalem becomes all that's left, but then they lose sight. So God says, listen, all that you're all stuck on and proud of, we're taking it all. The Babylonians are taking it all. So let's start with verse one again. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly, tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity or sin is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is God saying, you're in captivity. You've paid what was owed from the generations leading up to you and your disobedience. You've paid your debt. I will again be your God. Right? Not that, And again, separate. Separate eternity from right now for a minute. And understand that when we sin, there is repercussion in our lives. That's a difference between salvation and eternity for people who have placed their faith in God or their faith in a modern day context. For those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, that we have we've had our sins covered by Jesus. But if I go out there and I shoot somebody, I will pay the penalty. Can I be forgiven? If I'm repentant and I am in Christ, I can be forgiven. Not excusing that. But the chances of me going to prison over shooting someone are pretty high. And so for their sins, they're taken captive. Not talking about them paying their debt in eternity. We can't do that. Only God can do that. But in this setting, this is what he's saying. Listen, now the penalty of your sin in this life, the penalty of your disobedience is covered. I'm going to begin to deliver you. Verse 3, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For those of you that have been Christians for a little while or are students of the Bible, how many of you, how many of you, does this verse sound super familiar? Okay, a few of you. For those of you that do not sound familiar, that's okay. I want those of you that it sounds familiar, I want you to kind of separate yourself from what you think it means. Because who does it remind you about? John the Baptist, Right. The other answer I heard was Jesus, talking about Jesus, right? I'll show you the quote later, but something is different here. So separate yourselves from that. Remember we said this earlier, Isaiah is speaking to a people in real time, right? He's speaking to them. He's not John the Baptist. And he's not just foreshadowing John the Baptist, but he's speaking to the people. Listen to what it says. A voice cries, comma, right? Right? There's a voice. Here's the rest of the quote. Here, or here is the quote In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. While you're in captivity, you're in the wilderness. While you're in the desert, the dry places away from God, prepare the way of the Lord. Hear it that way, not There's a voice crying out in the wilderness is what we hear about John the Baptist. Okay, if you're unfamiliar with that, don't worry about it. I'm trying to separate what we already think we know from what it actually says sometimes. Okay? So let me walk through some passages. So here's the question. If this is written 2,600 years ago, remember me rephrase that. If this is to a people 2,600 years ago, how do we get Isaiah without him being hundreds of years old? I want to walk back through some things that we've already covered. So here's the first one. Isaiah 8 says this. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. So Isaiah says this, the words that God has given me, the promises, the story, the prophecy that God has given me, the people are not listening. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bind up or tie up the testimony, seal my teaching among my disciples, right? Faith is a disciple-based thing, right? Our faith, their faith, Being a disciple, being a student of someone, is what we're all called to. Isaiah has disciples, and Isaiah's been speaking to the broader people, to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, even to some of the foreign nations at one point, but nobody's really listening. So Isaiah says, listen, they're not listening now. I'm not going to tell them the rest of the story. I've told them enough. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about Isaiah speaking to a people in real time, but in the midst of it, he tells his disciples, listen, God's given me the full story. I want you to lock up the rest. I want you to hang on to this. I want you to keep this to yourselves until it's time. Can I have the next verse, please? Isaiah 30. <laughs> and now go, write it before them on a tablet and describe it in a book that may be for a time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Here's what Isaiah is saying take with the rest of it I have. Let's write it down. Let's hang on to it. Pass it from disciple to disciple until God says, now's the time. In our passage today, Isaiah 40, now's the time. You with me? So this is a book that spans well over 200 years. And this is Isaiah speaking in all of it. Because of the settings that it takes place in before Assyria, Time to back all the way to Egypt, all through this, to the time where Assyria attacks, we know when that was, to the time when Babylon attacks, we know when that was, to the time when they begin to be released from Babylon, we know when that is, and it's hundreds of years. And so critics, quote unquote scholars, have said there's no way Isaiah could have written this, but he did, and even tells us what he's doing with it. He's hanging on to the rest of the story so that a people that will actually listen can hear the rest of the story. So here's a, here's a note for you. The sealed prophecies are now opened. God completed the story, but instructed Isaiah to hold it for a future generation. Now the people of God are being called out of captivity and God unfolds his ultimate plan. Isaiah's final prophecies are during the post Babylonian captivity and point us forward to God's redemption. You with me? It's a lot of history, a lot of tech, a little bit, right? Like how is this all taking place? But it's important that we understand. So now you have to fast forward in his time to a time where he has passed on, he's given this to his disciples, and the people now are being released from Babylon, and God is proclaiming comfort to them. So verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So yeah, that does really hearken the words of John the Baptist as he says, prepare the way of the Lord, right? let Let me put the next slide. Just so you have this in its context, all four Gospels quote Isaiah, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, note the difference. Do you see it? It's not a voice cries, comma, quote, in the wilderness, right? Prepare the way of the Lord. Now it's voice cries in the wilderness, comma, quote, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It's actually a redo of that one. Do you follow me? John goes out to the wilderness, reminding them of their time in captivity, and he does so to allow people to understand they're captive to their sin in that moment. And so he goes out to the wilderness, and he calls out for the Jewish nation, the Hebrew people, to repent. So a voice in the wilderness cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. And he does so symbolically out in the wilderness. He kind of takes them all back mentally and and emotionally and, and just takes them all back to Isaiah and their captivity, reminding them their sin led them into captivity. And they're just as captive to their sin today. How great was Judaism when Jesus entered into the scene? Pretty bad, right? Pretty politicized, pretty divided between left and right, Sadducee and Pharisee completely missing Jesus for the most part. And so John is calling them out. And this is where really he begins to call Jewish people to undergo baptism, which was never Jewish. That was for Gentiles becoming Jewish. And so this this idea of now we're back captive or trapped in our sins. And so he says, listen, prepare the way of the Lord. So, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths straight, calling all believers to proclaim Jesus to a lost world. There's your four references for the Gospels quoting Isaiah. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. And un- the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. got to go camping this week. few of us went. Uh, Scott and I came home yesterday. We left earlier. I don't know where Scott is, but wherever he is, we came home early. And as we were out there, we were driving along, and we'd be out on a dirt road. We're off-road about 40 miles out off highway. And as you get back past there, we would just stop and kind of take in some of the scenes. Huge mountains. We got up to about 11,000 feet. Valleys were pretty low. The colors and the rock formations would change as we drove through there. And what you get is really, you can never... No matter how good you are, how good your camera is, you can never really capture the depths and the changes and the things that you get to see, right? And so when you, when you do that, just imagine being out in the mountains. Just imagine the big peaks and, and the low valleys and the places where water run through. And that's an image that Isaiah is giving us that we need to hear about as it relates to the gospel. Now, I know, probably doesn't make any sense at all. So the big high peaks are the people that are highly self-righteous and proud. The people that think, hey, I'm a pretty good person, all right, and because I'm a good person, I'm I'm gonna go to heaven, right? God has gotta be pleased with me, because I do this, I do this, I do this, and I don't do this, I don't do this. Those are the high peaks. And the low valleys are the people who are like, I have no intrinsic worth, right? I don't think God could ever love me. I've done things that are so bad, I'm not sure God could ever forgive me, right? Maybe we live in between those two places, or maybe we have some of these things sometimes and some of these things the other. But imagine those two settings as we, listen, as we understand and listen to the gospel. See, the gospel is very simple. It's that God created you and loves you. He designed you. You weren't some random chance or accident or thing that evolved into you? God created life. God spoke, and the universe was in place. God exhaled, and Adam got life. Adam received life. Humanity is created, designed, and the design is to be worshipers of God. It's not just what we do when we're here singing, but it means that our life would be given over to giving glory to God, right? That our lives would proclaim God in all that we do. Sin is anything other than that. Sin is anything other than putting God first. Sin does not mean, uh, the absence of sin does not mean the absence of joy or fun It just means enjoying things the way God created them to be. And that your life should be a life that brings glory to God. And that anytime we take our eyes off of God and we go our own way, that's what the Bible calls sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have contributed but historically adam sinned and the fallout was a curse that separated us from god that our relationship was severed a lot like imagine a marriage that has an infidelity someone is unfaithful and it and it and it splits the relationship and that's what happened when sin came in it separated us from the god who created us so god entered into human history in jesus and jesus lived the life that we were called to live he died the death we deserve because of our sin and the sin we've inherited. He was buried in a grave to show it was finished and then rose from the dead to give us new life. As he went and ascended back to heaven, pours out his spirit on all of humanity that would come to faith in him and calls us to be messengers of that gospel. So back to the mountains and valleys. So if there are people that are, you know, that just think they're good people and very proud and proud of what they do or don't do, right? That's your Pharisees. They were the, law, the rule keepers. They were the ones that made all the rules and kept them all pretty well. And the Sadducees were the people that were pretty separated from holiness, if you will. In our day to day, we've got those people that think because they're a good person, they're going to heaven. And we've got the people that think there's no way God could love me. I want you to hear the verse in this context again. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The gospel is this, no matter who you think you are, you are separated from God by sin. And no matter how good or how bad you think you are, all are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And there is no sin that is outside him loving you or forgiving you. And there's no goodness that you may have That exempts you from the need for Jesus. The gospel is a leveling field. Where we all come to God desperately in need. But also incredibly loved. And so he calls us now to be a people that are messengers of that. In Acts 10 it says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him anyone who desires to come to faith, anyone who comes to faith in Jesus is welcome, is loved, is is called, right? And that God sees no difference. The person who looks good on the outside, the person who looks terrible on the outside, the person who is terrible on the inside or whatever, all are desperately in need of Jesus, but, but incredibly loved at the same time. A friend of mine says we're not defined by our worst decisions, but rather we are defined by Christ's best decisions. Let me add to that. You're not not defined by your best decisions either, but by Christ alone. The gospel is that all are welcome, but the gospel is that all are in need. Verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? That word cry is is not like tears, it's proclaim, right? Right? a voice crying out in the wilderness, right? So a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And the answer, all flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Notice again, Isaiah is the one calling out. Isaiah is the one speaking to them from their wilderness. Yes, from the grave, but he's already written it down to them, right? Imagine we fast forward 100 years and you receive a letter from somebody living today. It's like that. And so here comes Isaiah saying, listen, here's what you need to proclaim. Life is like grass, right? It withers and fades. Life is temporary. Life is shorter than we anticipate it to be. But it's a call to proclaim the gospel to people while we have this life. Verse 9. So go up high on the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So listen, God is speaking to Zion. God is speaking to Jerusalem. Like, like saying, we are speaking to generations. We are speaking to Cerritos or the city you live in or whatever. It's not about a location. In fact, Zion is often seen like that. I wrote it down like this. There's a, we have a note for you. The people of God speaking. Zion refers to a place where people are doing what God has instructed. We should similarly hear the word church as Jesus reaching into the world through people who are messengers of hope in Christ. Zion isn't just the hill in Jerusalem, the mountain that they talk about, but Zion is referenced as a people there who are obedient to God and doing what God has called them to do. We as a church should be that. We should be not a location, not a body, not a membership, not anything else, but we should be a people, not that any of those things are bad, we should be a people that are obedient to Jesus who are reaching out as messengers into the community with the hope of Christ right, that we would speak out, that we would proclaim peace, that we would speak tenderly, that we would say comfort as God opens this passage with it. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. This is really advancing kind of the, the inauguration of Christ's kingdom, right? It's talking about them being released from captivity and moving back to their home, right? As we follow the story, like I said earlier, Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be the three waves of exiles that come out of Babylon, right? And they come back. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is amazing. They have three waves of people, and they have really three things they do. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in our Bible Originally written as one, probably written by Ezra, but because it accounts the story of Nehemiah so much, the second half is is attributed to him, his words, probably written by Ezra as they work together, but it records 120 years of exiles coming out of exile of Babylon in three massive waves of people, and the first thing they do is they begin to restore their worship. They go back, and they put their faith in place. Again, worship, much larger than just what we do on Sundays, but they begin to focus on rebuilding a temple, rebuilding their worship, building their practice of their faith, the feast that they were to keep, the fasting they were to do, the sacrifices they were to make, the giving that they were called to give, right? Like us, rebuilding this, focusing back in on being part of a community, of serving somewhere, of giving financially to the, to the common work of the church, attending growing, belonging, participating. That's what they do. That's the first thing. They focus on their worship. The second thing they do is they rebuild their homes and focus on their families, right? From their faith trickles out the other core thing that God created, the nuclear family. A husband and a wife or a dad and a mom and the children being the core place where the faith is passed on. Parents were equipped in the temple or today in the church, to then take that home and equip their kids in their faith. That's the second thing that goes on. The third thing is they begin to build their city back up, just like us, that we should restore our worship, we should restore our families, and we should restore our community to Christ. That's what they do. So he proclaims this as the inauguration of their kingdom, but looking forward to right coming out of captivity into freedom Just as we do in this life, coming out of the captivity of sin and flesh into the kingdom of Jesus. So all of this is happening in real time, but all of this is also pointing us forward in comfort and in hope. Because this life will never be perfect. This flesh will always struggle. This earth will always have its challenges. But our hope is looking to when Christ makes everything right. That we begin to live that today. That we begin to participate in that today. That that's the very thing that our tithes and offerings that we give to. That the building of the kingdom now, the, the, the contribution of the community, the family, the faith. That's what we do today. But we do so knowing that as we grow this, we're including other people that they will get to see the ultimate kingdom as well. Behold, God comes with might, he says. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them. He will gently lead those that belong. young. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? You understand the people have been held in captivity for a long time here. Some of them have given up. Imagine you've been in captivity for years maybe a generation has gone away maybe you were born in captivity and though people have been crying out to God where's God like why isn't he answering maybe you don't understand the whole context of generation after generation after generation after generation hundreds of years of disobedient people but you're born into this setting and you're like I don't understand why God's not listening didn't he deliver them out of Egypt why won't he deliver us out of Babylon So many people have struggled, and what we do, just like them, is they begin to question God, right? How many times have we wrestled through our faith, and we've asked the question, well, like, I'm not sure hell seems fair, or I'm not sure that this seems fair, I'm not, how can this happen, and how can there be a good, how can, how can God be a good God, and a tsunami wipes out thousands of people in Japan? Like, we begin to ask those questions, right? Does that make sense? Maybe a long, hard struggle in the same direction, and maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe a long, hard struggle in your marriage, and it still falls apart. Maybe you raise children that just no matter how much you love them, how much you teach them, they never do see, see Jesus in the midst of all that. I'll give you one personally. This month, I think this week coming up, makes 17 years Lisa's been primarily bedridden. We've been married for 20 Three and a half years in, there have been moments, for her, for me, I remember moments vividly sitting on my couch just out of words, like, God, I believe you're good, but I don't get it. Like, I see no goodness here. Let me read this to you again. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who of you can stretch out your hand and measure the ocean? I've told you, one of my favorite places, and Lisa and I have lived in Huntington most of our, most of our marriage We recently, about a year and a half ago, moved over to Biola, by Biola in La Mirada. One of my favorite things to do is to walk alongside the ocean and imagine how big the ocean. I've been thrown around on that thing. I've wrecked surfing. I've, you name it, right? Spun so hard and so fast around you. Know, I said, Which way is up yet, right? You've been there? And imagine how powerful that ocean is and see God is greater. And when I ask those questions, God, how, how does this make sense, God? How is this good? How do we do this? His words come back to me like, Who of you can just stretch out your hand and measure oceans? God says, I do. The breadth of my hand is what that is. I am so much bigger. He goes on. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed in the dust of the earth a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord and what man shows him his counsel? What man shows God his counsel? Whom did he consult? Whom did he make understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. Behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted for as the dust of the scales. Behold he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing with emptiness. This is not about not caring for people. This is about the sheer magnitude of God. And the, sheer, the, the, the finite minute size of who we are like a dust on a scale that doesn't even measure like the the comparison of us to the ocean being so small and his hand being the size of the oceans who did God seek out counsel from when he was planning justice Isaiah says like God didn't ask you what do you think is fair and unfair because God is God and he is bigger than that And that doesn't mean that we can't begin to understand or press into, but it does mean this, we won't always understand. We won't always see how this thing right here makes sense. There'll be never a time where we're gathered together in a room like this and you do the funeral for a young child and it makes sense, right? But God is saying, listen, I'm God, you're not. You must trust in that. That you're in captivity, yes. You were born there, I get it. You're crying out, I'm delivering you. But you don't get it. And you never will. The mind of finite humanity will never understand an infinite God. If we could understand God, we would be equal to him. And so Isaiah reminds them of the grandeur of God, the size and scope of the God who loves them. And he presses them to remember. Hey, I know you've been praying that prayer like you delivered, you delivered Israel out of Egypt. Why aren't you delivering us out of Babylon? Yes, they were there hundreds of years, and you've been there a generation. Like remember the story. God is good, and he delivered them. God is good, and he delivered them. Remember. And when you don't understand, you press into the truth. So sitting on that couch, I remember, I remember saying, I don't get it. I'm out of words. But I know you're good. I know you're God. I know I'm not. And then a lot of times I'd sit in silence. because I still don't understand. I love that man's comment in the Gospels. I believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I believe you're good. Help me that I don't believe it. God, I believe you're God. Help me when I forget. God, I know you're bigger than this. Forgive me, I still question you. God is big enough for that. He wants our questions. He desires us to engage. He just desires us to understand we're not going to get everything. Maybe not in that moment. Maybe not until we see him face to face. But God is God. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse, 18. Verse 19, an idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out skillful craftsmen to set up an idol that will not move. So here's the God that's too big to understand. By the way, let me say something about that again. Here's an infinite God. We can never grasp or contain who God is, right? Right? Yet God has done nothing but spend time revealing Himself to us through His Word and eventually through Jesus, that we could understand, that we could see, and that we could comprehend what we can. God's revelation to us, God's Word, God's people. God himself in the flesh is to reveal himself to us. So never sit back and go, I just can't understand it. We're called to worship God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds, with all our strength. We're not supposed to disengage intellectually. We're just supposed to know at the end of the day, there's some things I don't get. But God desires to reveal himself to me, to you. There's things in here that I don't understand that some of you do. There's sciences, there's histories, there's things. There's things I understand you don't. We can spend time getting to learn all that. But we can't learn it. We can't know everything. And God is that everything. So he says, whom will you liken God then to? An idol? So he's talking about idols created, fashioned out of gold. Or if you're poor, fashioned out of wood that won't rot. But listen to what he says. Fitted for silver chains, or wood from a skillful, skillful craftsman that will not move. See, here's what they would do. They would set up these big idols. And they would chain them on four sides so they wouldn't fall down. You with me? We got a snort, so I'm going to move on. All right. Or wood from a skillful craftsman that won't move. You ever buy something cheap? from somewhere cheap that's like, car. Like I bought stuff in Africa, I bought stuff in other places, whatever, and it just doesn't sit flat. Kind of got to position it just so it doesn't fall down on your shelf until you finally throw it away, right? Yeah. Who are you going to compare God to? An idol you have to strap down or get somebody skillful enough to like level the bottom? This is God looking at you going, really? That's your best? You can't understand me, so you build something with your own hands? And then you kind of stink at building, so you got to tie it down on four sides or you got to make sure it levels out. Like you, you kind of suck at this whole creating your idol thing, right? I mean like that's, and you're going to compare that to me. You're going to bow down and worship that. Yeah, our idols are a little more subtle. It's the car we drive, the job we have, little initials after our name that show you how long we paid for school. The role we might play in a church, let me just tell you right now, the lady in the nursery, I'm assuming lady, I could be wrong, whoever's in the nursery today is a really important role because we're not listening to babies cry right now, right? Right? I even got some hands in the back with Sheena. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> babies. Everybody plays a role. This is mine. Do yours. We need everyone. I need you. We need you so that we can do this. They pay me not to sing. We need Joe, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's in my contract. We're giving you this extra, but right, don't sing at all, ever, right? (laughs) Who do you compare God to? Verse 21, do you not know, do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He's saying, what's your excuse? What is your excuse for doing this, for not trusting in God? Here's what Paul will go on and write to the Romans. It's in Romans chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, there's an entire world out there, and we're a part of it, who is caught up in worshiping things that can never fulfill them. They worship their sense of family. Or they put the, the burden on all their children to, to achieve all the things they couldn't do. They weren't a good athlete, so this kid's going to be good. Or I didn't get to go to college, so I am going to invest everything I can in this kid getting a scholarship so they can go to college. All at the expense of our faith. Or we idolize our home. So when people come over, they think we're cool, or a job, or an income, or you name it. But how are they going to know how dumb that is, how dumb we are, if someone doesn't say something? And so God says, listen, I've started the message. Isaiah's carried it on. Jesus carried it on. Paul carried it on. The message is there. But the message isn't just for God to audibly speak to everyone. The job is ours. The job is ours to go and proclaim an infinite God in the best way finite human beings can do. That when things are struggling, when things are challenging, when things are hard, that we're a people that are supposed to speak comfort. That we bring peace. Verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. We're up at, I think we camped at 10,000 feet. Not last night, night before. If you've seen the sky from Big Bear or something, or been up that high, we're up in the Sierras. There's just a blanket of stars out there that the city and lights from the city prevent us from seeing, right? It's that stretch of the beauty of the sky that Isaiah is saying, that's what God stretches out over us like a tent. Like the tent that covered me, didn't keep me warm, but covered me in that 20 degree weather. The stars are that cover for us. That's God. That ocean we love. I mean, we pay a lot of money to live in a state filled with traffic and all kinds of things because we love this place. Or we're trying to get out one of the two, there's a lot of that. We'll leave politics out of that too. But we love this. There's no better sunset. We get the best. You go high enough and the stars are amazing. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who created you. And he sees you as more intrinsically valuable and loved than the stars. He's put that kind of care into you and into saving you from yourself. Scarcely, verse 24, are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. It's a reminder back to verse 6 and verse 7 where it says you're like grass. <clears throat> you wither and fade. You're born one day, you grow, you wither, you fade, you die. He's reminding us, yeah, that could take 100 years, it could take 50 years, it could take 20 years, we don't know. But it's short. It's short in the, in the, in the grandeur, uh, in, the, in the timeline of God, it's, it's, it's that fast. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's pointing back now to the sky. He who brings them out by their host by number, casting them all by name, by greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God is promising their deliverance out of Babylon right now. And it says, remember, quit comparing me to the Babylonian idols, the false gods you give yourself to. Remember who I am, and I am delivering you. Verse 27, what do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right And my right is disregarded by my God. Let's just pause there. Like, the things I'm doing, God doesn't see. And what about my rights? That sounds American, right? Like, that's right out of 2019 Western American Christianity. What about my rights? God's like, yeah, sure. Where were you when I hung the stars in place? Like, where were you when I was measuring the ocean with my hand? Like, I get it. And I love you, but you need to see yourself how I see you right now. Nothing you do is hidden. And your rights got you here. How about you think about my rights? I created you. How about my justice? I called you into existence and gave you the way to live. Why don't you rethink? Have you not known, he says, verse 28, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator. Of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The people still don't trust him, but he says, "Listen, the answers are out there. There's no end to God. Whatever it is you desire, you seek, there is no end of God. to go find it. There's an end to you, but there's no end to God. Pursue it. Verse 29, he gives the power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall feel exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I never got my timer today, so we're totally, oh, I did, sorry. We're going to totally run long. That ship sailed. Anyhow, so, uh, so was my best friend's favorite verse in all of Scripture. The anniversary for his suicide was last month. Had a brother die two years later. Similarly, drank himself and drank himself and drank himself to death. Because our past isn't conducive to living long. And Robert and Brian could never get over the things we did, Things that were done to us. Everybody has their own story. But the things we endured killed two of the four of us. My other little brother also came to faith. Everybody died in faith. I want you to hear that. They all died in faith. One of them took his life because he just ran out of strength. One of them took his life because he just ran out of numbing the pain. And two of us have found peace in Jesus. Comfort my people. Comfort. It's the gospel. It's the gospel to you, but it's the gospel to everyone else also. And how are they going to hear if we don't tell them? It's your job. It's my job. It's not my job because I'm a pastor. Let's get that really clear. Right? Ephesians 4.11 Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all the people that God gives the church. Read the next line, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to equip us so that we can be the messengers. We, me because I'm a Christian, me because I follow Jesus, you, same reasons. You're the message. Got that? You're the message and the messenger. You're the message. Your changed life is the message. And you're the messenger to share that story. I'll finish with two quick verses. First, Peter says this, All flesh is like gla- grass, and the glory of the, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's a quote right out of Isaiah 40. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the gospel, Peter says. Acts 1.8, to everyone who believes, God says this, but you will receive power. This is straight from Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit that lives in you is enough for you to be the messenger of comfort, of peace, of deliverance from bondage, of strength when you're weak. The Holy Spirit is enough to make you the messenger. Your responsibility is to go share it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I pray for those who hurt so bad, Lord, they take their lives. As a pastor I knew just did that recently. No one is excluded. Depression and pain are real. You don't have to have a stupid backstory like mine. You can be an everyday person who struggles with pain. You lead off as you begin this passage pointing us forward to your eternal kingdom. You lead off with comfort. Comfort my people. May we be the message of comfort. May we be people who are comforted by you, released from the bondage that we have created in our own lives. Maybe the comfort we've inherited. And then may we be the messengers of freedom. May we be messengers of redemption because you, God, are a good God. You, God, you are beyond anything we could ever ask, imagine, or understand. But yet you have stooped so low to put on flesh so that we could begin to know you. You don't want us to get to know you and it dead ends in us. You want us to get to know you so we can share you with others. That is every one of our purpose, mission, responsibility, and expectation So may we take that message to others. It's in your name we pray.